Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 6. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of John. And then as we make our way through the large numbers or chapters, the small numbers or verses. So we're going to take a step away this week from our study in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 6. This is something we've looked at before, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different uh, perspective this morning. And for those of you who are looking at this thinking, good night, that's a long chapter. We're not going to hit all of it. And so uh, we have barely enough food to go around. And so uh, we're not going to hit all of this, but I think the Lord has a word for us in this, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Uh, some of you, probably most of you know, uh, the middle of, of April, Good Friday, uh, have our Good Friday service. We're here. Things are going well. I get in the truck with the older two boys to leave. Valerie's at home with our youngest. He's not feeling well. And so I just text her and say, hey, real quick, I'm headed home. And she wrote me back and she said, I'm headed to the ER, which it's just, just not how we get down. Like some of you, that's how you roll. I mean, like that's the way that you banter. That's not the way that we banter. And so I was like, well, this is going to take a phone call. And so I pick it up. I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, well, uh, his breathing's not good. His fever has spiked. I called the pediatrician. I spoke to his pulmonologist. And, and they said, we don't have time to go to Dallas. We've got to go to Hunt County. And that's how you know it's getting bad, right? I'm just repeating the pediatrician. And so, anyway, and so I, I call a friend and say, hey, listen, I need you to come pick up the bigger two. I've got to go to the hospital with Valerie. And so a friend of ours comes, uh, picks up the boys. I go to the hospital with Valerie. We're sitting there in the waiting room, which I'm pretty sure Dante envisioned when he's talking about like, the circles of hell. And so you're in there, and there's this woman who apparently doesn't know you can text like this, and it's all voice text. Yeah, it almost took my finger off. It's a good thing I had those acrylics put on. They stopped it. And she had that conversation a dozen times. I'm so thankful for that acrylic. <laughs> so we're in there, and, and, and we're watching our youngest struggle to breathe. And we're watching him be lethargic. And we're watching all these things that we've seen so many times in his life. And there's this sense of, I want this to be over. I want this to be done. So we go back to the triage. They take notes. They take his oxygen. They get some vitals. They send us back to what kind of masquerades as a room. And we're in there. Nurses are in. Doctors are in. And all this stuff. And they're asking us, like, what's his fluid intake look like? How's he done? What's his fever been like? And they're getting just kind of basic information to run us through to determine where we're going to go from there. And they look at him and they can clearly tell that he's, uh, that his, that he's not taking in enough fluid, that they're going to have to introduce fluid via IV, medicine via IV. And so they look at him and they're thinking, buddy, this is going to be unpleasant for you. And he just wants to go home. He just wants all these people to leave him alone. He just wants to go home. But we know that's not what he needs. We know that's not good for him, even though it's what he wants. So as the nurse comes in, and they begin to assess him, and they get ready, and they're going to insert the IV. First, they try it right here in his wrist, because that's going to be fun. And so they say, Mom, Dad, you're going to have to help us. You're going to need you to hold him down. That's not what we want. We know that's what he needs. 
So we worked to secure him. We worked to hold him down. And they worked the needle into the top of his hand and pull it in. And he jerks his hand back and it comes out. Even though that's what he needed, that's not what he wanted. So round two comes around and we get in there and they've got the board ready and they've got his arm straight and secure. And they run the needle up his arm. And that's what he needs. But there's no part of him that that's what he wanted. And in the days that would unfold, and in the, in the ambulance trip from Hunt County to Children's Medical over in Dallas, and the stay in the ICU, and the stay in the hospital over there, time and again, he would just say, I want them to leave me alone. I want to go home. How do you explain to a six-year-old, this is what you need? At one particularly low, po- low point, he turned to his mom and he said, I think we should escape. (laughs) And so she asked him, she said, what do you think would happen if we escape? He hung his head. He said, they'd make us come back. (laughs) Over the course of your life, there'll be a host of things you want. Some of you this morning, when you came into this place, what you want is the pain to stop. Some of you this morning, when you came in, you want relationships that are decayed, that are falling apart, to be restored. Some of you, you've struggled with depression for months, and you just want it to end. Some of you, there's just ache that you can't even articulate what it is. You just know something in this is not right, and you desperately want it to stop. Jesus gives to the disciples, he gives to those following him an address this morning that's so incredibly helpful for us because recognize this, he will not give you what you want at the expense of giving you what you need. He will not give you what you want at the expense of giving you what you need. John chapter 6 opens up. And Jesus has been teaching, he's been healing, and he's, he's amassed this terrific following. And he's getting ready to do what John's going to record is this feeding of the 5,000. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the sea which is called Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd coming towards him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip's a pragmatist. And so he's quickly doing some math, looking around, and he says, listen, if I worked for 200 days and I gave all that I made in that 200 days, it wouldn't be enough to buy food for even a portion of these people that they might even have some small amount. Well, Andrew, ever the optimist, turns, and he says, listen, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, lest you're thinking like red fish, like big filet of fish, like, lest you're thinking like some delicious cod dinner or whatever you have in mind, think salted fish. Think like a little bit of garnish. And for the bread, don't think big French bread loaves. Think like barley cakes cooked over a hot stone or a hot piece of metal. This is not a terrific amount of food. There's no way this is going to feed one person to be fully satisfied, let alone those 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Jesus recognizes it's enough, and so he takes it. He blesses it. They begin to distribute the fish. They distribute the bread. And at the end, Jesus, in verse 12, says, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they took this paltry amount of food. They took this food that's not really even enough to satisfy your hunger. It's just enough to let you know you are really hungry. 
But the leftovers, they had 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now listen to this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said amongst themselves, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. You get into Deuteronomy 18, and Moses is trying to cue into the people what to look for in the future. And he tells them that after him is going to come one that God is going to use to phenomenally impact the world. He's going to change everything. So the people, in seeing the signs that Jesus is doing in the healing, in seeing the signs that Jesus is doing in the feeding, key into their mind, this is the guy. There's something different about him. This is the guy. This is the one we want. And so if this is the guy, this is the one we want, there's something we need to do. And so they rush, and their desire is, we're going to make this guy king. We know he can heal. We know he can feed. Can he rule? What they want is a king. Verse 15 says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, there's something they wanted, but Jesus recognized it wasn't what they needed. Jesus will not give you what you want at the expense of giving you what you need. Now think about this. The Jewish people following him, they were so incredibly tired of Roman rule. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of being taxed. They were tired of being told what to do. They were tired of having their land taken from them. They were tired of not having any autonomy. They were sick. They were diseased. They were hunger. And they were angry. And there was a righteous indignation they had towards the assault of the Romans upon their autonomy. They wanted, like you and I, they wanted an experience of freedom. They wanted an experience of delight. They wanted an experience of what it would be like to control their own destiny. And they saw somebody they thought could give it to them. And so they were ready to yield over their autonomy. They were ready to yield over control. They were ready to yield over following. They were ready to follow Jesus, and they knew that to do that, he had to be their king. They wanted to make him king. But Jesus is not in the business of giving us what we want at the expense of what we need. So he escapes from them. Jesus, as we pick up the passage again, he travels over to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets over there, the crowd's looking around. They're trying to find Jesus. They catch back up to him. They see that he's there. They walk up to him, and they begin to engage him again. Look at verse 25 in the same chapter. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus doesn't give them the interesting little tidbit about walking on the water. He doesn't think that they need any more of that. He moves immediately and he says to them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were mesmerized at what Jesus had done. That keys into their want. Jesus doing the signs, Jesus doing the wonders, Jesus filling the hunger in their bellies met their wants. But it didn't begin to address the point of what their needs were. So Jesus corrects their wants and it begins to expose their needs. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. He says, listen, it makes sense. Like, I totally get it. You guys are hungry. I fed you. You show back up because you're hoping to have breakfast. Do not work. Do not labor. Do not give yourself. Do not pursue those things which are fleeting, which are passing, and which do not lend themselves to eternal life. So they say to Jesus, and they ask a question, which is pretty natural, which is what you and I would say. Okay, so this stuff sounds pretty good. 
Uh, I'm just going to say like barley loaves and salted fish, like that's my fave, but this sounds even better. What then do we have to do to be doing the works of God? He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Do you see the invitation Jesus extends? Do you see the invitation that he's giving them? Y'all, this is something so much better than barley, loaves, and fish. This is something so much richer, so much more lasting than these things that are going to pass away. He invites them to follow him. He invites them to know him. But they want it verified. They want it validated. They're acting like they've got the telemarketer on the other end who you know in your mind is really just trying to sell you a, a timeshare, but they're talking about free vacations. They're talking about, you know, this is going to be an amazing experience. Do you like your kids to see stuff? Do you like to travel? And you know there's a 30-hour seminar and payouts for the next 50 years that your grandkids are going to have to make to ever get out of this thing. That's how they're treating Jesus. What sign can you give us for these things? How can you verify these things? that we may see and believe you. What works do you perform? The very people he just fed. They want to know what else he's got up his sleeve. They said, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. They're remembering Exodus 16. And he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They said, listen, our fathers, they're in the middle of the exodus, and as they're headed out, they were hungry, and they began to ask God and cry out to God, oh, that we could have stayed in Egypt. In Egypt, we had leeks, and in Egypt, we had all of these various things. And so God supernaturally made food appear to them. Like, he made food come out of nowhere for a group of people traveling along, and they're saying, this is what our fathers, this is what our forefathers got from God. What do you have? Like the bread and fishes was pretty great, but you took something and made it more. What can you do on level of matching him? What do you have? Jesus in verse 32 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're thinking, this bread sounds great. I want some of this bread. Give us this bread always. See, they're still missing. Jesus is pointing at himself. He's asked them to come and believe in him. He says, come and follow me. Believe in me. See in me. And they say, no, 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 no. How about this uninterrupted buffet of Panera? Like, that's what we want. We want the cinnamon crunch bagel before they started getting chinchy on it. Like, that's what we want. You got some of that hazelnut spread? Like, that's what we want. They don't get it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father will give to me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
They describe manna as the bread that came from heaven. And Jesus turns and he says, you need the bread that never fails. You need the cup that never runs out. What you need in your life is me. What you want in your life is to be satisfied. What you want in your life is to numb longing. But what I want you to see, what I want you to understand is that there is a longing that can never be numbed. There is a longing that can never be satisfied lest you come to know me. And the Jews are angry about this. They're so incredibly frustrated. Verse 41 doesn't really capture it in this, but it just says they grumbled about him. It's just this, everybody's caught up in this consternation, this flow of, it's very guttural, just kind of unhappiness that Jesus is speaking in terms that they don't understand. He's describing himself in ways that they don't appreciate. And the Jews grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. And so they begin to point at flaws in who they see him as. Say, listen, we know this guy. Like, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They knew Jesus. They had watched Jesus. They'd seen him grow up. They knew his family, and they saw in him something that was not remarkable. How can he describe himself this way? Why is he toying with us? Why won't he be straight with us? So he says to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In verse 47, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven and that none who eat of it may die. I'm the living bread that comes from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. They miss it. They're so consumed with their wants that they have no space in their hearts to entertain their needs. Maybe this is how you're feeling today. Maybe you consider your financial state. Maybe you consider your health. Maybe you consider the decisions you've made. I listen, I don't know what it is for you today. The wants in your life scream at the top of their lungs. And they seek to drown out the need God knows you have. They seek to be paramount. They seek to be first. They seek to be preeminent. They seek to be the thing you wake up to and the thing you go to bed at night. The last thought on your mind how am I going to pay this bill? The last thought on your mind, how am I going to care for this relationship? The last thought on your mind, how am I going to secure this job? The last thought on your mind, how am I going to deal with all this pressure? The first thought that wakes you up in the morning, there's no joy, there's no relief. Your wants are in total. Listen to me. Your heavenly Father knows every need you have. He knows every want on your heart. He seeks to address your want by securing the address of your need. He cannot move to address, to take care of, to remedy the symptoms of your need by meeting your want. God will not care for your wants at the expense of meeting your needs. 
Jesus wants them to see their need. So he gives them this curious thing. He begins to talk about himself in this metaphor of being the bread, and he talks about his flesh being this bread, and, and the more he talks, the angrier they get. They've moved from grumbling in verse 52 that says they disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this invitation to cannibalism Jesus extends before us? This is essentially what they're saying. So he says, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Do you get a sense of the shocking nature of the address that Jesus is giving them? He's not interested in them no longer being hungry. He's interested in them being followers of God, being redeemed, having their sins forgiven. He goes on, he says, My flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I am him. As the Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like, the blood, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus has this gracious invitation to them. And he has this invitation to you. At Jesus' table, he invites us to come and feast. You see, he lived his life as a sacrifice that you and I might not have to pay the penalty and the punishment for our sin. So when he's talking about his flesh, he's talking about his flesh that would be beaten, that would be torn, that would be abused. And when he's talking about his blood, he's talking about his blood that would be poured out. He was willing to submit his body to persecution. He was willing to submit his blood to be poured from his body so that your sins might be covered. In the middle of all your wants, in all the various pressures of your life, there is a need that will not be covered by simply meeting the list of your wants. So Jesus is teaching them this. He's in the synagogue there in Capernaum. And he's given this hard teaching. And the really troubling thing that John tells us is John does not move back to the response of the Jews, the response of this massive crowd following. What John moves back to is he highlights how incredibly difficult this teaching is, not for the small group of 12, but for the larger group of people who began to call themselves the disciples of Jesus. Men and women who had indeed left everything to follow him. Men and women who had seen in him the prophet, the one come like Moses. Men and women who saw in Jesus something radically different. Men and women who were willing to suffer for him, still adhering this teaching. It was too much. It was too far, it was too radical, it was too difficult. Listen to what they say. They said, this is a hard saying, and who can listen to it? Who can understand it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe this. Jesus wants to give them what they need, but they can't see past what they want. So reading on, verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
Imagine being in this room, and, and, and it's a room packed full of people, and you're teaching. You've got four, five hundred, six hundred people in the room, and you're telling them, and you're engaging with them, and you're answering the questions that they need to have answered to be able to follow. And I don't know if you've ever spoken much in front of people, but you can tell when people are tracking with you. You can tell when people are disagreeing with you. You can tell when people are agreeing with you, and you can tell when people are funny because they laugh at your jokes. Jesus finishes this. And there are no questions in the room. All but the 12 leave. All but the 12 leave. Jesus had 5,000 men, not counting children and women. And they were willing to take him and to make him king to secure for them the future that they wanted. But when Jesus gives them the teaching that they need, he's only left with the 12. So he turns to the 12. And he wants to know where is the heart of the 12? Where is the heart of the men who have left everything to follow me? Will they be like the hearts of those who can't leave the wants to pursue what they need? So he turns to them. He says, do you want to go away as well? Listen, everybody else left. I know you feel the pressure to leave. Do you want to go away as well? What I want you to see before we read it is that Jesus had done a work in the heart of Simon Peter that allows him to look at the wants of life and the needs of life and to submit the wants of life with the needs of life. He knew the most important thing for him was to follow Jesus. Simon Peter answers and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are you this morning? You know what your wants are. And you know what people want of you. But do you have a sense of what you need this morning? Do you have a sense of what the holy creator God of the universe is revealing to you in your heart that is your true need? Listen, if you're in this place, you might have grown up in church, you might be a perpetually good person. But as you describe yourself within your heart, you know that the direction of your life has been the pursuit of your wants. And in this place, you have some feeling in your heart, some movement that you say, my wants are not enough. Jesus gives us the impression that that is the drawing heart of our God that calls you to the Son. If you do not know Jesus this morning, if you've not received the forgiveness of your sins, that is what you need. More than any want you have. More than the recovery of sickness. More than the stabilization of a job. More than the rescue of your marriage. What you need this morning is salvation from your sins through Jesus. Maybe this morning how you describe yourself 
is as a follower of Jesus. But you recognize that you've not been following him as the only one who can direct the course, the affairs of your life. You've been chasing everything else in life, seeking to satisfy want. There is no end of want. There's no end of longing. There's no end of finding one more thing to fill up the void. If Jesus is not enough for you, if you're not willing to let him be enough for you, there's no end of the things that you will seek to fill that spot, that void with. To follow him is to follow him with your whole heart, not some piece, portion, or fabric of your heart. Are you willing to submit your wants to get what you truly need? This weekend for the city, we had an opportunity to see what it looked like when, I think Justin described it as 35 plus churches, which is like plus two, plus three, I'm not really sure. Over 30 churches come together to pursue being impactful in our city together. We can only sustain such movements if we are willing to jettison what we want and receive what we need. Because we recognize the greatest need in our community is the peace that only God can bring through the Son. Amen? The unity in our body can only be achieved if we pursue peace through the Son. Amen? There's a whole host of things we can want. There's only one thing we really need. We need the Lord God and his presence in our lives. And to do that, we've got to be willing to let go of our wants that get in the way of achieving and pursuing what we need. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning, we have an opportunity to come to your table So God, as the ushers are coming forward, we're getting ready to hand out the Lord's Supper. It's just this beautiful picture. I just think of Corinthians and that even though we are many, we are one body, that there's one table, that there's one Lord, that there's one sacrifice, his body and blood, his body broken, his blood poured out. God, you are good and you do good. But if we could be honest today, we're struggling. We want to see you as faithful, but we have a hard time seeing that in the middle of the mess that our lives are. We want to see you as trustworthy. We can't see you through the haze of all that is going on in our lives. So God, would you give us clarity in your presence this morning? Would you invite us once more to your table that we can enjoy your presence, enjoy your love, your forgiveness? God, we love you. Some of us are struggling to see that you love us. Would you help us to trust? Would you strengthen us by the power of your spirit? God, some of us in this room What we need now is to surrender our lives to Jesus. 
God, you tell us that your spirit comes into the world to convict it concerning sin and righteousness. And so, God, I pray that you would convict those of sin who have not yielded themselves to you. And, God, we pray that you would draw them to the Son and you would save them through his death. God, we love you. And we just ask that you would be glorified in our heart's posture before you. And we surrender this time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, in just a moment, we're going to pass out the elements. Joel, let me get you to come help me pass out.